I'm Evan Golden from Eye on South Florida. Today is a special guest, Larry Zonka, two-time Super Bowl champion, Super Bowl MVP, Hall of Famer, and it is a special time. It is the 50-year anniversary since that perfect 72 team. Does it feel like yesterday, Larry? <laughs> yeah. Well, I just finished writing a book about it. And after six months of working on the book or more, it uh, kind of relived the whole thing, which was... Uh, in most respects was very exciting was a lot of fun in some respects it's a little sad because so many of the fellas on the team have passed and coaches as well it's uh it's uh dealing with reality you know that's why we wanted to bring you on the show you wrote a book called head on tell me about the book where you got the name from and what kind of inspired you to write this now well i think head on is kind of the running style i had that's the way the uh definition of uh ball control or power ball power ball running was uh, aligned with it was just in your face and you know there's no two ways about it the rules have changed it's a, you know what what happened back then is unique and will never happen again i hope because it's a, it was a singular moment and and you know if you can't go all the way if you go all the way back to the, like the 30s and look at the rules changes coming forward. They change about every 20 years. There's a drastic change. And it's for the better. It's for the protection of the players. And it and it makes the game more exciting, more um, competitive. So it's a good thing. But at the same time, I you know, I like to look back and uh, occupy that that zone. And what and I thought head on depicted that. That was that was the way we played then, was head on. Absolutely. Yeah, you don't see running backs use that style anymore. Like you said, you're not even allowed to do that and maybe i think it is for better a better safe because i think you broke your nose 10 times in your career with your head on running no, style. No, I, no i gotta correct you there i never broke my nose someone always did it for me <laughs> there was always a nitschke or a butkus or a lanier someone was always willing to do it you know so <laughs> if you stick your mug in there often enough it'll get broken i promise <laughs> i mean i think you look at the, the football of the past. I mean, obviously the grit, the toughness, I think Shula was making you guys do maybe three or four day practices. Now they only let them maybe practice three or four days a week. I mean, the game has really changed in 50 years, right? You know, the rules about every 20 years, there's major differences in the rules. So when you talk about the greatest of all time and not to, not to defer from that, statistically people become the greatest of all time. I understand that. But you, when you talk about greatest of time, that infers that there was other people that weren't capable of it. And there, there were. There were other people that could, could get those kind of stats if they would have played under those rules. But you, you still, you don't want to detect, you don't want to take anything away from some of the folks that are called the greatest of all time because they obviously are outstanding people. But at the same time, you look back and you see people like Bart Starr, you see, you know, Bob Greasy, or Joe Name. There's the list goes on and on. Tarkington, there was guys that under the right rules, my gosh, some I think Fran Tarkington still be playing. Well, I know he's passed now, but I think they would have played uh, comparable time. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to de demean anything about the players that are that are active today and are become, being called the greatest of all time that's fine but at the same time there's other people that under those rules would have done it as well i'm sure absolutely so what can readers expect from head on there's so many football fans fans of the 72 team the perfect season you yourself you're such a role model inspiration a hero to so many people 
What can we find in this book that we haven't known before? I grew up in the country. I love the outdoors. I'm not at all at home in downtown New York. I much prefer the outback of Alaska. Um, we explore all those things and how I felt out of place in downtown New York and was in the company of people like Jim Kick or Joe Namath and people that were very much at home and love the city. I always felt kind of, uh, well, biding time till I could get back to the country is the way I felt. I didn't dislike the city, but I would have rather been in the country. And I think that's depicted well in the book, as well as what my drive was, was to get to Alaska. I always wanted to go to Alaska. You know, I always pictured that as the last frontier and, and I wanted to go and visit. And, you know, a very you know, from the time I was eight, nine years old and saw a book, a Field of Stream magazine with a picture of a, of a Kodiak bear, giant grizzly bear on the front of the cover. I wanted to go there and experience that. I did and did experience that. And uh, we talk about it quite a bit in the book and refer to it. Some very exciting moments, some very dangerous moments, some very exciting moments. Yeah, that, that you always had that goal. And I'm glad and I know you always a big supporter and you appreciate the wilderness and adventures and hunting and fishing. So you've earned that right to take that all in. And you talk about some of your crazy adventures. Is it true that you were once rescued from the Bering Sea? You almost died at sea? <laughs> yes. Yes. Very much true. <laughs> very, very true. Uh, we spent an overnight uh, uh, excursion on a boat that uh, we almost made it back in into the protection of the inlet before the storm hit, but we didn't. It was almost. So we spent all night literally living from um, one minute to the next. That's wild. So you're always into adventures and getting into adventures. I know they're going to be honoring the team at this uh, week seven against the Steelers. So that's exciting. I know Don Shula would obviously love to be there. What was kind of your relationship with Don Shula? I had a chance to watch your your speech for him at uh, about him at the tribute at the stadium. I think that I've read different stories that you guys have had controversies, you've had arguments, you even went as far as throwing an alligator when he was taking a shower. Is that is that a true story? No, there was an alligator that was placed in his shower as a joke. Uh, <laughs> no one threw an alligator at Don Shula. <laughs> I noticed when he first arrived as head coach uh, that he was particularly uh, jumpy and afraid of little creepy crawly things, which being a country boy, I picked things up off the ground, looked at them all the time. And uh, there was a piece of rubber that was a packing material that the new goalpost had been delivered in. And as we were running out in 1970 to go out and do the calisthenics before one of his four sessions a day, I picked up a piece of rubber and was looking at the packing rubber. And he walked up and said, what do you have? And when I, I flipped it at him, being funny, just to flip it at him, and he thought it was a snake. And at that moment, I realized he ran 40 yards wide open away from me and uh, screamed like a kid and took off. So I realized he was afraid of creepy crawly things. I told Manny Fernandez, our defensive tackle, about that. And about a year later, Manny had an opportunity where he and Bill Stanfiller, defensive end, caught a little baby gator and brought it back to camp. We're going to put it in the, in the pond. And I suggested maybe we could put it in Shula's shower. You know? <laughs> and uh, I diverted the secretary, uh, Manny Fernandez and Bill Stanville carried the gator and put it in the shower and it startled Shula pretty good. He, uh, he ran out to, well, let's just say he was, he was pretty embarrassed by the whole thing. 
<laughs> Only you guys can get away. Find with out who like really that. did it. <laughs> Only you could get away with something like that. That that's pretty incredible. Do you yeah. look back at now? Do you appreciate how hard he worked you guys with those four days and the running and literally just throwing up on yourselves? Do you look back and you appreciate that type of work ethic, or is it a little too much for yourself as a veteran? It's hard to believe that I'm sitting here saying this, but. I'm glad he showed up and I'm glad he was the way he was. I didn't understand it at all. I was not the kind of guy that you hang mottos on the wall and make little cartoons about running gassers and staying in shape and all. I thought that was a bunch of crap. You know, I, I didn't care about that. I thought football's just like the title of the book, head on, you know, let's go get them in the face. But he taught us the intelligent side of football <laughs> makes it a lot more operative and being in shape being in the best shape possible. And he made the statement once that the Miami Heat and practicing four days, he cut out the water breaks and said, we'll become camel-like. And I, I couldn't resist it. I popped off and said, that you mean we'll become camel-like if we lived? And he said, my office after practice, you know, we, <laughs> Don Shula and I did not like each other when we first met each other. He told me, you know, or I told him, he called me into his office. I thought he was going to trade me. He never had a history of having running, you know, a power running back. That was uh, Green Bay. That was Lombardi. That wasn't Shula. He's Johnny Unitas and throwing that ball. So I figured I was out of there when he came to the Dolphins. And uh, I went in the office and he said, when you come in my office and shut the door, you can say anything you want. You know, absolutely. All, all coaches, player relationships off. We're just two men talking. So I walked in, shut the door and said, I don't like you. <laughs> and he, he looked right at me and said, well, we've got something in common. I don't like you either. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, it's obvious that I'm probably not going to fit into your plans. Why don't you trade me? He said, I've looked into that. And he said, I can't get enough for you. <laughs> That's how we began in 1970. And from there, it went to a, um, you know, that in one respect, that's kind of um, a negative thing to talk about. But in another respect, it shows how much the truth was dealt with, what reality is uh, when you're putting together a football team. And I think that's very important. I think uh, being able to walk in his office and talk to him straight across the board and him not uh, uh, holding any, any animosity towards, towards you from having that conversation. You, you deal with each other totally honest in his office. In front of the rest of the team, you addressed him as coach and you didn't back sass him or talk because that was he was the boss and he had that power but he you know i didn't like that system but as time went on we started to win and and evan you know in your lifetime when when you when you do things and you make commitments and you, you sacrifice things and it works there's a tremendous feeling of accomplishment when we started to win I look back at those little idiosyncrasies that I was taking, you know, taking a, a taking a lot of, um, I didn't like. <laughs> and I realized that's how he does it. That's his plan. So that's what we should follow. If you want to win, you make that sacrifice, even though it's not the way I would do it. It doesn't matter. It works. When you recognize that fact and you realize that he's the head coach and it works, now you've got something. Now the team starts to starts to become a team. And uh, he was the essence of that. 
I love that relationship and that honesty you guys had. And, and, and it obviously worked. It developed on the field to go from one of the worst to three straight Super Bowls, a perfect season, back-to-back -back championships, you winning a Super Bowl MVP. You're born on Christmas. You are truly a gift to the sport of football in America. So we're so appreciative of you. Um, let me ask you this, because I know I just had a private tour. I went to the home game uh, this past Sunday. They built a beautiful museum of the 72 Dolphins team. It is remarkable. I saw actually a whole shrine of Dolphin Denny. Do you remember him? Dolphin Denny. <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of, uh, you know, the great thing about that football, one of the best things that I like to brag about, I don't think I emphasize it enough in the book, but it's one of the things I touched on in the book. In 1970, there was all kinds of uh, problems, social problems going on in the city of Miami. Racial tensions, uh, political uh, 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 pressure, factionism all through the city. And there are literally, you know, riots and, and all those things going on. But when you take a football team and you stick it down in the middle of that and it starts to win, suddenly it starts to win. I think we became a focal point for that city that kind of calmed it down and started to be a point of pride. And it, it brought a lot of factions, whether they were political, racial, whatever they were, it brought a lot of people together that wouldn't have been together otherwise. And we started the whole tailgate thing because in Miami, the Orange Bowl was all high fenced in an area, secure area. It was a very rough neighborhood or whatever that is, rough neighborhood. But after the games, the people parked in the same spots that we did. Players that weren't sanctioned off and kept in different. We parked right amongst everybody. And pretty soon people started to know where our cars were. And they waited for us after the game to talk about the game. And that's when the um, tailgating sort of was born there. And uh, we got to know all kinds of folks. You know, you'd have a mechanic sitting here and the vice mayor sitting over there. <laughs> People were talking about not just football. They started talking about some of the social problems. And I think it helped bring people together. I think it gave a, a, a focus where they could all get in the same, same carriage, if you will, and focus on the road together instead of attacking it from, from separate carriages. You know, I, I don't know, that's probably a bad simile, but I think it brought people together like they hadn't been brought together before. And that was a good thing in Miami at that time. No, that, that's a beautiful thing. I love that. And I used to hear stories from my father that the players would actually go tailgate after the game. They were drinking beers, eating chicken wings Absolutely. with the fans. The Miami police would show up and say, we've got to close the, the Orange Bowl. You know, we got to lock this place up. And we'd go out, sit down, have a, you know, have a cup of coffee with us, have a hot dog. We know you're on duty. We'd offer you a beer, but sit down. And pretty soon they got permission from the, um, I think the vice mayor or somebody granted the permission to keep the Orange Bowl open till like four in the morning because we'd all sit out there and and BS about the game, and 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 then we get into the the other ramifications of of what was going on in the city. So it became not just an athletic gathering. It started out that way, but it also became a social mixing thing that uh, that I think was good for the city. You know. No, I love that. And when you weren't playing football and bringing the community together, you were shooting covers of Sports Illustrated. I also read that you were spending a lot of time with some of the biggest celebrities, icons, Burt Reynolds. Elvis Presley. I just watched the Elvis Presley movie. What was it like hanging out with these type of icons as well? 
Well, <laughs> I was in the company of those fellows because of where I was at and uh, those folks. And uh, like with Elvis, uh, when I was with the, uh, the other league, I jumped to the uh, World League and we ended up in Memphis, Tennessee, and Elvis was a fan, and he and Jim Kick got to know each other because they both liked to shoot pool. And well, I was rooming with Jim Kick at the time, so I would go over to Elvis's mansion, and he and Jim would shoot pool, and I'd sit over at the bar and listen to him BS. And we started to know Elvis other than just as a TV uh, rock and roller. He was into football. He liked football, liked to talk football, liked to shoot pool, liked to play eight ball. And he was uh, had some really good questions. I could tell from his questions a couple of times he asked me about different things in football. I knew that he had taken part or played or been involved in it from his questions because they were uh, they were reflective of somebody that knew a little something about football. That's great. I love that little tidbit of Elvis. Who knew that? He's not just... Shaking that pelvic and hips, but he was actually a true fan. <laughs> He's a whole nother guy. There is a whole nother guy there that was a very, and a, and a real guy. I mean, real down to earth and uh, as crazy as he used to act, you know, that was all, uh, well, that was his deal. That was his, come on. But there's, there's another whole person there that's a pretty deep thinking, intelligent, nice guy. That's very cool. That three-headed monster of you, Murky Morris, Jim Kick, was there ever type of, um, I don't know, uh, animosity towards each other? You guys all kind of embraced each other and well, got along? After the uh, loss in the first Super Bowl, when Mercury sounded off and wanted to be part of the offense, and who could blame him? You know, it, it was time. He and Jim both aspired to be the starter, and they're competitive with each other, but they were both men, and they both regarded each other with honor. I don't know how else to describe it, but they, as much as they would argue about who should be on the field and why, it never got personal because they kind of liked each other <laughs> off the field and uh, as competitive as they were. And as time went on and they started to split the time in the backfield, making the most of when they were on the field. The only thing I ever heard Jim kick bitch about or say something negative was he didn't like to be substituted when we were out when the ball was out uh, down by the end zone because he had to run 40 yards to the huddle <laughs> each way going in and coming out, you know? And so he uh, had a complaint about that. But other than that, he understood it made the team stronger. And that means that we could win that much more. So they were willing to make the sacrifice, but they actually got to be really good friends. That's why I had them come up in, uh, in when I was doing the Alaska outdoor show in, in Alaska. I had them come up and go fishing with me in, uh, towards the end of the show, probably around 2014, 15. They both came up and went fishing, and neither one are much fishermen, but it was just hilarious to have them out there and have them together. And it was just, it was really heartwarming to see them fly up together from Miami and how good and how long their friendship was. When Jim got very ill towards the end of his life, uh, Mercury was one of the players that came to see him the most often in, in Miami and kept, uh, kept their friendship alive and kept Jim kind of smiling, which was a good thing. That's a, that's a nice story. And I like to hear that bond and that friendship and that team first mentality. I know Mercury always has a bottle of champagne on ice ready to pop it when there's no more undefeated teams. Do you join him in that tradition? 
Well, that tradition got a lot of exposure and it was made out like that happens. I think it's more uh, Miller Lite beer, but (laughs) (laughs) champagne. But uh, there is an appreciation of when the last team falls. And certainly there's been some times when it came right down to the wire and uh, more appreciation than than other times. But it, uh, it, it is an inherent. We get together each year and start to talk to each other as it gets down to just one or two teams left. You know, a great thing that opening day, half of them fall and then a quarter of the next week. And then you start to wonder, you know, who's who are the guys that are still standing? Who are the teams that are still standing in the fourth game? And it's, you know, it starts. It's it's it 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 gets us competitive again each year. Those juices start to flow again because we don't want to see anyone do it. And I'm forever indebted to a guy named Tyree who caught a ball in the side of his head and coach Tom Coughlin, who was a, a classmate of mine at Syracuse uh, years and years ago. I, uh, I remind him all the time I'm in his debt. As That's they great. Out. And you'll still go on record that there'll be never another undefeated team. 72 Dolphins will stand alone. Well, you know, every year it's up for grabs. So if someone can do it, uh, all they can do is tie it. Perfect is perfect, whether it's uh, 17 and 0, 19 and 0, or 13 and 0. It's uh, perfect is perfect. Uh, so all they can do is tie it. They can't break the record. Well, as of now, Perfectville is only population one, and that is your team. But it's really inspirational. It's heartwarming to see that it was more than just a football team. Hearing the stories, how you bring the community together, and so many conflicts, have everyone come together for a common goal, support your own hometown team is just a really true blessing. It just really is making me smile. I think the big thing there, Evan, I think the big thing there, Evan, excuse me for interrupting you, is all we were, the football team, was a conduit. When people get together and start to know each other personally and put their differences aside and start to see the good things and, and relate to the things that, that make us all humans on the planet together, they start to have a sympathy for each other. And it seems like that calms things down. When you create that competitive thing that brings people together, that's great. But then the camaraderie of, of us against them, they start to look at each other and they stop dividing off so much. And I think that's what we were a catalyst that helped that happen. But it's it's something that's not unique to the Miami Dolphins or the 72 team or any or Miami. It's all of us being a little more tolerant of each other and starting to understand that we're all in the same boats, we're all Americans. And uh, that's what happened in Miami, and that's what can happen today if we approach it with that same attitude. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I love that, I love that, and, and it's a beautiful thing, and it's something that I will cherish. I'll share these stories with my children. I want my children to share these stories with their children and forever keep this tradition and this historic moment alive forever. So I appreciate your time, Mr. Larry Zonka. Viewers, listeners that are tuning in now, go ahead and pre-order. Order that book head on right now. It's unavailable everywhere you can purchase books online from Amazon. Go right to his website, LarryZonka.com. It is a great read. And Mr. Zonka, give us some words of wisdom, golden nuggets before we sign off, some advice that our viewers and listeners could glean from you and utilize in everyday life. Sympathy and a winning edge. And whatever, whatever that winning edge is, it can be very, very small. It can be very big. But you'll know what it is when you put your hands, when you look at it and you feel it, you'll know what it is. Mr. Larry Zaka, thank you so much for your time. We'll see you week seven as we honor the 72 team versus the Steelers. I appreciate your time very much, sir. Thank you. Thank you.